Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We started last week looking at the final section of this chapter, verses 26 to 42. We didn't finish it, and we will not finish it today. But uh, we will continue on until either the Lord returns or we finally finish it, one or the other. Uh, but uh, we saw last week that uh, the this chapter, in, in this chapter, uh, he includes, uh, Jesus talks about uh, uh, six different identifying characteristics of a true disciple. And we said they were true disciple emulates his master. He fears God more than the world. He confesses the Lord. He forsakes family. He follows his call. He receives a reward. Uh, we looked at a, a disciple emulates his master. Look at verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the household Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Now this is an axiomatic statement, meaning it's self-evident. It's obviously true. You don't have to prove it. By definition, a disciple is beneath his teacher in knowledge and wisdom, and a slave is beneath his master in social and economic standing. And the Lord is simply saying the first basic principle of discipleship is that you submit yourselves to me. Uh, your choice can be seen in the disciple-teacher motif and my sovereignty and seen in the master-slave motif. And there we saw the duality of the doctrine of salvation. We choose to be a disciple to learn at the feet of Jesus, but he sovereignly chooses us to be as his slaves. Uh, and in either case, it's axiomatic that we're submissive. Uh, that's how it's going to be in this relationship. When you become a Christian and you affirm that you will follow Jesus Christ, you're saying, I submit to your commands. I submit to the truth you'll teach me. I submit to the orders you will give me, and I will carry them out. It's that basic. Uh, look at verse 25 again. It says it's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, the slave like his master. What he's saying is that the one thing about a true disciple is he's content to be like his teacher. He doesn't want to. He doesn't desire to be greater than his teacher. Uh, and then a true slave is content not to go above his master, but to be like his master and faithful to him. And that's where you start. At the end of the verse, Jesus says, if they've called the head of the household Beelzebul, how much more are the members of his household? In other words, family members shouldn't expect to be treated better than the head of the family is treated. And if they called him the devil and you're under him, what do you expect they're going to call you? So his point is that if people called him Satan and satanic, they would certainly call his disciples the same thing. So you have to be willing to pay the price. The more you become like Christ, which is the goal of all discipleship, the more the world's going to treat you the way that it treated him. And when it treats you the way it treated him, it's going to consider you to be evil because that's the way they perceived him. So the first aspect of the discipleship is the disciple emulates his master. Everything begins at that point. And that brought us to the second point, which we haven't finished yet. And that is the disciple fears God more than the world. Let's look at verses 26 to 31. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed and nothing and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Are not two sparrows sold for an Assyrian? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, for you are more, val you are more valuable than many sparrows. It says, do not fear. Three times in those six verses, Jesus repeats that. Why? Because having heard what he had to say in verses 16 to 23 earlier, the natural response is going to be that they're going to be afraid. Uh, and we're told in Proverbs 29, 25, that the fear of man brings a snare. And that's true. The fear of man strangles effective witness. It strangles evangelism. We tend to bail out when someone starts questioning what we believe. But the Lord's saying they're going to do that to you, but don't be afraid. Face it, be bold, don't be afraid. And Jesus gives the disciples three reasons why they, and by extension us, as his followers, are not to be afraid. The first one's found in verses 26 and 27. It's vindication by God. Someday God is going to take the lid off of everything and all things will be made just and right. He will vindicate us. He will show who the real heroes are. And evil people are going to find out that all God has for them is vengeance. Uh, so we've got to live with an eternal perspective. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 tells us that when the Lord returns, he will bring both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts. And then each one's praise will come to him from God. So we're not to live for the moment, but when, it, when everything is backwards, but for the future when God unveils what is truly real and reveals the hypocrites and shows who the real heroes were and rewards them forever. Uh, so that's the perspective we want. Someday God's going to look at the record of our life. He's going to expose everything. And those who have looked like they were winners will turn out to be losers. And the losers who've been persecuted for their faith are going to be the winners forever. That's the plan. So we aren't to be afraid of what the world does because we're looking for an eternal vindication at the hands of our Father God. Instead, what are we to do? Verse 27, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. The idea is this. Jesus is says, I've been telling you the secrets in your ear. I want you to tell the whole world. There, there are no secrets in humanity. And the way this applies to us is that whatever you hear whispered in your ear from the word of God, you're to speak aloud to the world holding nothing back. Uh, what the Lord has made known to us, we are to make known to others. There are no secrets. Uh, and here at Lakeside, that's what we hold to. We post our sermons and Sunday school lessons in public, on public websites for anyone to hear. We aren't hiding it. You shouldn't either. So Jesus says, what's whispered in our ear, we're to proclaim from the housetops. In those days, uh, public announcements were often made from housetops. Uh, houses had a flat roof with a short wall around the edge to keep the small children from falling off. Uh, and that was the patio of the house. And people slept up there. They ate up there. They held social events up there. They sat under the stars up there. And if you wanted to make an announcement, you just stood on the edge of your roof and yelled it out. Uh, the uh, Both official and personal public announcements were often made from the rooftops of buildings. Uh, the rabbis would sometimes teach from there. The Talmud tells how religious officials would climb up on a housetop with a trumpet at the approach of any religious holiday. Uh, th there was no traffic noise like we have today. Vast majority of people were not working inside their home all day. Instead, they're out on the streets and the fields surrounding the buildings and the houses. There were no 
windows and no TVs and no headphones to block out sound. So you could just yell out whatever message you wanted to proclaim. And so Jesus says, make the gospel message public. You go out and yell it from the housetops. Obviously, we don't do that today, but we have printed books and radio and television and the Internet, all of which serve as vehicles for us to publicly proclaim the gospel message. That's why we have verse-by-verse -verse radio and active websites for both the church and verse-by-verse. Uh, I can't begin to tell you how many people I've met here at church who heard about us on the radio or found us on the church website. Uh, one of them, a physician in our area who's now retired, actually came to faith by listening to verse by verse. Uh, we don't know if there are more, but considering that somewhere between 100 to 125,000 people hear the program every week here in the Central Florida area, there may be more. Uh, so it's to be a public message, and believers must get out of their church buildings and share the gospel. You see, church has never been, not in biblical times nor today, intended to be the place where you bring your unsaved family and friends in order for them to hear the gospel from a trained professional. Um, and it's certainly nice if they are willing to come, so don't misunderstand me. But the purpose of church is to teach the word to believers, build them up in the faith to help them grow to maturity in Christ and let them go out into the world to share the gospel with others. Uh, and we are not to alter the gospel message for fear of what reaction is going to be. There was a price to pay for this in biblical times, as there will be today also. The apostle Paul recognized that that was the way it was going to be. In Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. And he told them, and now behold, bound in the spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But he headed off to Jerusalem anyway. And when he got to Caesarea, he's staying in Philip's house, and a prophet named Agabus came to meet him there. And Agabus was from Judea, where Jerusalem was located. So he had a pretty good grasp on on the religious opposition that Paul would face there. And being a prophet, Acts 21.11 says he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And that got everyone upset. So verse 12 says, and when they had heard this, when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, when I read that, all I can think about is that Paul had already been almost stoned to death in Lystra. He'd been thrown in prison and beaten with rods in Philippi. He experienced much other persecution in his travels. And yet, somehow, these believers in Caesarea think they're going to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem for fear that he'll be taken into custody and handed over to the Roman authorities. They obviously didn't understand Paul's mindset. And so in verse 13, Paul explains it to them. It says, Then Paul answered, What are you doing crying and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And verse 14 concludes, And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Paul didn't care what the cost would be for proclaiming the gospel. He understood that public proclamation of God's truth will result in persecution. But you can't pull the punches. 
nothing less, nothing more than what he told you in the darkness, what he whispered in your ear, you are to shout from the housetops. Christianity is no secret organization. We seek a public place to preach Christ. You say, well, if we do that, though, that's going to get a little hairy because people are going to react. That's right. But Jesus says, don't hide it. Get the message out. Shout it where it needs to be heard and don't hold anything back. Now, that doesn't mean that we are to be needlessly offensive and we are never to be offensive in our approach or attitude. But when the fullness of God, of, of God's revelation is taught, the world is invariably going to be offended because it will stand accused. Uh, fallen man does not like to hear that he has fallen. Uh, sinful man doesn't like to face the reality that he's sinful. Rebellious man does not like to be told that he is God's enemy. Uh, those are the truths that Jesus and the apostles never uh, refused to not proclaim. They, they, they proclaimed them. And it was because they boldly taught such truths that the world rejected and persecuted them. Uh, you know, the world does not object to a gospel that is only positive and only talks about the God's offers of peace, joy, and blessing. Uh, unbelievers are not offended by those elements of the gospel. But they are terribly offended when they are told that they are sinners under God's judgment and destined for hell. Uh, but without including that part of the message, you've not shared the gospel message. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Look at John. You know, I'll, I probably don't tell you to look at it. You probably just know it from your heart. John 3, 16 and 17 uh, for a moment. Perhaps the most well-known verse in the Bible. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And verse 17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But what is left out in many gospel presentations, they'll, they'll cite John 3.16, but they leave out that what's implicit in verse 16 is that apart from such faith in Jesus, you will eternally perish. You notice it says, whoever believes in him shall not perish. Well, the opposite corollary, whoever doesn't believe in him shall perish. It's true, but that gets left out. They just People just sort of slide over that word uh, because the implications for the person to whom they are speaking are enormous. They'll be eternally judged. And verse 18 makes that explicitly clear. It says, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, if you don't believe in Christ, you've already been judged and condemned. Saving faith goes beyond mere intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel and includes self-denying trust in and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of saving faith. And apart from saving faith in him and him alone, a person is going to spend eternity in hell apart from God in heaven. Now, that's not a message that's going to endear you to most people. But you must not shrink back from including that truth in your presentation of the gospel. We are to say nothing less and nothing more than what the word of God says. That's why it's so serious when Christians eliminate part of the message or they add some other message in addition to the one from God. That does nothing but confuse people about the gospel. And you run the risk of them believing a false gospel and not actually being a true believer. 
So the first reason why we're not to be afraid of the world is that God will vindicate us in the end. So proclaim his truth clearly and boldly without fear. The second reason is our fear of God. Look at verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. At one point in his ministry, John Calvin was banished from Geneva, Switzerland, where he had been ministering for two or three years at that point, because the people were opposed to his requirement that only believers were allowed to receive the elements during communion. Uh, and when he was banished, he said, most assuredly, if I am, had merely served man, this would have been a poor recompense. But it is my happiness that I have served him who never fails to reward his servants to the full extent of his promise. In other words, what he's saying is when they threw me out of town, if I was serving man, that would have been a bad situation. But I was never serving man anyway. I was always serving God and God will keep his promises and bring all his rewards. Uh, and that's essentially what this second point means. We are to fear God, not man. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you fear and honor and revere God enough, then you're not going to be concerned about men. If you have enough fear of God, you'll, you won't fear them. Why, why won't you fear them? Because all they can do is kill your body. They're not able to kill your soul. Um, the very worst thing they can do is kill your body, but that isn't the real you, is it? Uh, and... So don't fear them about killing your body because that isn't that big of a deal. Uh, remember what Paul said, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Gain. So that isn't a problem. Jesus says don't fear them, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is that? God. It's not Satan like most people think. Satan will be destroyed there himself. In Revelation 1, John saw a vision of the glorified Christ, and it was so overwhelming that John fainted. And Jesus reached down and touched him and said, Do not fear, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And now watch this. I have the keys of death and Hades. Satan is not in charge of hell. Jesus Christ is. So don't fear men, fear God. That's the issue. And he's only using the idea of killing the body and comparing it with destroying the soul to show that God has so much more power. It's a comparison. He's not saying that you don't have, if you don't live the right kind of Christian life, God will send you to hell. That's not the point. The point here is that we are to fear the one who can determine the destiny of souls, not the ones who can only determine the destiny of bodies. It's a comparison between men and God. Don't fear men, fear God. And he uses the word fear in two different senses here. The first is in regard to men. Uh, uh, it has to do with fright and terror. While the second in regard to God has to do with awe and veneration. And it often comes down to this very issue. Sometimes you have an occasion when you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone and you think, if I do this, I know I'm going to really get it. Maybe it's in your own family. And they're going to get mad at you and cut you off from the rest of the family. And you say, I don't want to do it. Then you feared them more than you feared God. Uh, because if you really feared God in the sense of all and reverence of his whole infinite holiness and majesty and of his blessed name, if you worshiped him as he ought to be worshiped, then you would speak for him on his behalf with any threat that stood in your way.
But whenever you opt out of that, you've said, I fear men more than God. And Jesus is saying that's silly because the worst men can possibly do would be to kill your body. But God is the one who determines the destiny of souls. As a footnote, some people think that the term destroy at the last part of the verse at the end where it says destroy both body, soul and body in hell means that Jesus is teaching total annihilation in hell. But that's not what the word destroy means there. Uh, the lost will not cease to exist. But in their resurrected bodies, Jesus says in Matthew 25, 46, they will go away into eternal punishment. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, speaking of those who do not know God and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're told that these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction uh, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In Revelation 14, 10 and 11, we're told about the punishment of people on earth during the tribulation who followed the Antichrist. And it says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Such an awful thought. So it is not a destruction of annihilation. It is an interminable, everlasting destruction in hell. Uh, the word hell here is de'ena. Uh, and it's a term derived from Hebrew for the valley of Hinnom, a ravine on the south side of Jerusalem. Uh, the valley was the center of idolatrous worship in which children were sacrificed by fire as an offering to the heathen god Molech. Uh, in the time of Josiah, it became a place of abomination, uh, polluted by dead men's bones and the filth of Jerusalem, and by garbage and uh, rubbish dumped there. And a fire burned continuously in that valley, and thus it became a symbol of the unending fires of hell where the lost were consumed in torment. Uh, the term Ge'ena, uh, is not the same as Hades, um, which is the place where the dead await for the final judgment, or as we say in English, Hades. Um, uh, and, but af and after the final judgment of the great white throne, they'll be sent to eternal hell. Now that's not to say that Hades is simply a place of waiting in which there's no suffering or torment. In the, in the story Jesus told of the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus, who both died, it says, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man went to Hades. And it says in Luke 16, 23 and 24, he was in torment and agony in the flames. So while it's not the final lake of fire or hell, it's an agonizing, tormenting punishment. Now let me quickly preclude a question. I'm sure is running around in at least a couple of your minds. I will admit up front this is a bunny trail. Um, it's a diversion away from our text. Uh, but I want to address it before somebody asks me about it. And that is, it's this. Didn't Jesus take all the believers who were in Abraham's bosom to heaven with him when he died? Isn't that what Ephesians 4.8 means when it says, he led captive a host of captives? Actually, that isn't what it means at all. Look, let's look at Ephesians 4.8. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, I know that many have been taught the idea for years that when Jesus died, his soul went to paradise, and he then took them all to heaven with him before he was resurrected. However, an interpretation, that interpretation ignores the context of Ephesians 4. And remember, what are the first three rules of biblical interpretation? 
context, context, context. Okay? In Ephesians 4.8, uh, the context there is how believers are prepared to effectively serve Christ. And Paul quotes Psalm 68.18, which says, You have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you've received gifts among men. So in Ephesians 4.8, Paul is using the illustration of the triumph of a Roman military leader who brought back captives and the spoils of war, which were then distributed as gifts. But that this isn't the only time that Paul uses this illustration of a Roman triumph to refer to Christ. In Colossians 2.15, it says, Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. So he disarmed the rulers and authorities of Satan by stripping them of their power. He turned them into a spectacle of conquered enemies. In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, the writer there says, Behold, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, now watch this, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So then, from those two passages, we see that the time of Christ's triumph was when he died on the cross for the sins of his chosen people. And so the host of captives that he led free were those who had been captive to the power of Satan and death. And then having triumphed, he gave gifts to men. What are those gifts? Verse 11, Ephesians 4 says he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers. Those were the gifts he gave to men after triumphing over Satan and his forces. So Ephesians 4.8 does not mean that, that Jesus took all the people in Abraham's bosom to heaven with him at that time. You might be surprised to know that some theologians believe the souls of all the Old Testament saints who died are still there and won't be resurrected until the resurrection takes place at the end of the tribulation when Christ returns to earth at his second coming. Others believe that Jesus did take them home with him when he ascended back to the Father. Uh, others believe, with good reason, I think, that the Old Testament saints mm -hmm. went directly to heaven, just like the souls of believing New Testament saints do. And they base that on such biblical passages as Enoch and Elijah being taken up to heaven without ever dying, and then later both Elijah and Moses appearing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking to him about his coming departure back to heaven. And then there are some who believe that he did take them home during those three days that his body was in the grave. So while we can't be dogmatic about these matters, we must not base our beliefs on a misinterpretation of Ephesians 4.8. Okay, yes? So, you know, when he was on the cross after Christ, Christ said, you know, today you will be with me in heaven. In paradise, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's much more we could say about that issue, but we've been swimming in the deep end of the theological pool long enough. Uh, so let's get back to our text in Matthew 10, 28. Notice also that it says soul and body. The unsaved will be resurrected and they will be given eternal bodies that will dwell in that fire. They're, they're, see, everybody is resurrected. Some are resurrected to uh, destruction. Look at Paul says in Acts 24:15, there cert shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. 
In John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Daniel 12, 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. So they will have actual bodies. And then people say, well, is this an actual fire? I mean, it's called both the lake of fire and the outer darkness, but fire isn't dark, so what is it? Well, let me give you my best theological answers. I don't know. Uh, ex I don't know exactly what kind of lake of fire is black and dark, but it is. And those who will be in it will have actual bodies and souls. So Jesus is not saying to Christian disciples, listen, guys, if you goof up, you're going to go to hell. No, no, no. He's saying, fear the right person. Fear the one who is truly powerful. Fear the one who determines the destiny of souls. Don't fear the ones who can only mess with your body. Now, when it says to fear him, he's talking about God. It doesn't mean fear in the sense of terror, but a sense of awe and veneration of worship and honor. We don't fear man because we so worship God that we want to do what his will is, and we want to fear him rather than men. I'd rather fall into the hands of men who are upset with me than God who's upset with me. Hugh Latimer, great English bishop and chaplain of the 1500s, was preaching one day and King Henry VIII was present. He was a man known for his adulterous behavior and terrible mood swings, which often resulted in executions, and he was there. And Latimer later reported that he said to himself on that occasion, Latimer, 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 remember, the king is here. Be careful what you say. And then he's, he thought about that and said to himself, Latimer, 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 remember that the king of kings is here. Be careful what you don't say. You know what happened to Latimer? A few years later, Queen Mary had him burned at the stake. They, they didn't want to hear what he had to say. You all know the stories of the millions of Christians who've paid the price for their faith throughout church history. And I'm sure the question has gone through your mind like it has mine. How can they be so unafraid? Well, I'm not saying they weren't afraid of the pain that they would undergo, but they had a greater fear and adoration of God than they did of men. They worshiped God so much it removed the fear of man. Sir John Lawrence is buried in Westminster Abbey in London. He was a committed follower of Jesus Christ who spent much of his life serving in various high positions with the British government in India, concluding his career as the Viceroy and Governor General of India. And he spent much of his career fighting to end such practices as Suti, which is the Hindu practice of burning the living widow along with her dead husband's body, uh, as well as female infanticide uh, and burying lepers alive. Uh, he succeeded in accomplishing those goals, even though he met great resistance from the many Hindu tribal chieftains. Uh, and after his return to England, he was known for his unassuming humility that didn't seek fame or fortune. And on his grave, it gives his name, the date, uh, June 27, 1879. And at the conclusion of an accounting of his long service to his country, it says these words, he feared man so little because he feared God so much.
what a great testimony. Uh, we ought to fear and worship God so much that we don't fear man. Let me add that some Bible scholars think that Judas directed verse 28 at Judas. Uh, there will always be those among us who claim to be Christ's disciples who are, who are actually fakes and phonies. What a warning this would be to remind Judas that God is the one who destroys soul and body in hell. Uh, all the Judases of all time need to hear that. Well, we come to the third reason we need not fear, and that's our valuation by God. Notice that I didn't say our value to God, but our valuation by God. Uh, we really have nothing to offer him of any value. But he's chosen to place value on us. Look at verses 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for an Assyrian? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Jesus assures the twelve and every other person who would ever trust in him that they are dear to their heavenly father. With divine intimacy and intensity, the Lord loves and cherishes those who belong to them, and he will not allow any permanent harm to come to them. An Assyrian, or cent, or penny in most other modern translations, was the smallest coin in circulation in Jesus' day, and it was worth one-sixteenth of a denarius, which was the average daily wage for a common laborer. One Assyrian would buy two sparrows, which were small birds that the local street vendors would roast and sell to passers-by as a quick snack. Uh, you could just stop by a street vendor's booth and buy a couple of roasted sparrows and just pop them in your mouth. They were, they were so cheap that Luke 12.6 12, tells us that you could get five of them for two Assyria. Uh, in other words, if you spent two Assyria, they threw in one extra uh, sparrow. Uh, they were so cheap that people would buy a whole plate of them to serve at a large gathering, sort of like takeout food or hors d'oeuvres. You know? um, and yet, verse 29 says, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And implied is the idea that without your father knowing and caring about it, because in Luke's parallel account, he says, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. You say, you mean to tell me that God cares about a two for a penny hors d'oeuvre? You mean God knows when a bird dies? I mean, Bruce, scientists tell us that there are about 50 billion birds in the world. And you're telling me that God knows every time one of them dies? Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. And not only that, do you see that word fall? Interestingly, that word can not only mean to fall to the ground in the sense of dying, it can also mean to fall to the ground in the sense of the bird flying down and landing on the ground. You say, so are you saying that God knows when every one of those 50 billion birds lands on the ground? Yes, that's right. Nothing happens in the simplest, most insignificant element of life that God doesn't know about and care about. The smallest animal or insect doesn't perish without God knowing. He made those little birds. And Jesus says that, you're, that the God who knows all of the details is your father. That's very intimate personal term of love. The God who is so infinite, 
that he knows every detail of every creature, every star, every grain of sand, every atom and every molecule in the universe and holds them all together is your personal heavenly Father who loves you and cares about you. That's special, isn't it? Verse 30. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do you know that the average person has between 90,000 and 150,000 hairs on their head? Now, I hate to say it, but some of you are really messing up the average. Uh, it varies. It varies. How many hairs you have varies based on the natural color of your hair when you were a small child. Do you know that? Uh, blondes have the most, redheads have the fewest, and brown and black are in the middle. Uh, and God knows and numbers every single one of them. Uh, for some of you, it's not that high of a number. And since we lose about 50 to 100 hairs a day, most people our age are into diminishing returns. Uh, but uh, some young people replace them quickly, but not us older folks. Uh, in fact, I read a really interesting article this week. I just happened to come across it after I'd already prepared this and thought, wow, that ties in. You know, with all of their vast scientific knowledge, you know that scientists still don't know why hair turns gray? They don't know. They have a couple of theories, but they don't know why. She said, your kids. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Unfortunately, it even happens to people that don't have kids. <laughs> well, you say, well, what's the point? The point is that if God is concerned about little birds and God is concerned about numbering the hairs of your head, then verse 31, do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows and a whole lot of hair. It doesn't say that there, but I added that part. That's the idea. You know why you don't need to be afraid? Because you don't have a thing to fear. If God takes care of little birds and God numbers the hairs of people's heads to take care of that, and that's the framework of his care, don't you think you fall into his care also? So you're never going to get into a situation where God can't sustain you in that situation. Psalm 91.7 says, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. Isn't that great? In other words, it may all collapse around you, but it'll never touch you. God cares about you. Tender, loving care for his own is the mark of our God. We studied Matthew 6, 25 to 34 a year ago. But go back and read it again. And when you're done reading it, read it again. And then again. Anytime you're afraid of what might happen to you, whether it's the loss of your reputation, your job, your life, your resources, whatever it might be, you will find Matthew 6, 25 to 34 to be one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. So Jesus says, God takes care of little insignificant birds and hairs on people's heads. So don't you think you're more valuable than that? Birds don't have souls. Hair doesn't either. But you do, and you're eternal and of much more value. There's not one thing that will ever happen to you that is outside of God's sovereign will for you. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, 
and in your book all of them were written the days that were formed for me when as yet there was not one of them. In eternity past, God determined the details of your life and the exact number of days you will live. He has ordained the beginning from the end and yet without you being simply a robot. So then nothing will ever happen to you that's outside of his sovereign will. You don't have to be afraid of flying in airplanes or driving over bridges or traveling to Israel or anything else. I'm not saying that you live your life recklessly or simply ignore travel warnings to certain nations, but you exercise prudence and you trust the Lord that you're within his sovereign will for you. So Jesus says, if you're my disciple, then you've crowned me king of your life and you've said, I submit to you. So now you're going to face a world that's going to treat you like it treated me, but you don't need to be afraid because your heavenly father, the same one who cares for little birds and the hair on your head, has promised that he will take care of you. So are you going to be afraid? You don't need to because you've been vindicated in the end. You'll be vindicated in the end and you'll have an eternal reward if you have an eternal perspective. If you truly worship God, you'll transcend the fear of men. And if you understand how highly he values you, you won't be afraid of what they might do to you. So what's the level of your commitment? In studying for this lesson, I came across a story of commitment to Christ, which I had never heard before. It's one of the greatest stories of commitment that I've ever read. The first account of it was written by Basil of Caesarea in the 4th century AD. Uh, it comes out of the Roman era. Some accounts say it took place when Nero was the emperor. Others place it during under uh, Emperor Licinius. Uh, regardless of which emperor it was, it's an incredible story of commitment to Christ. Listen carefully. In those days, there was a group of Roman soldiers who were selected from among the forces for their skill in wrestling and hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, they were the best of the best, the elite among the athletes of Rome, while at the same time being part of the military. You might say they were the Roman version of our seals. Um, these wrestlers were formed into a unit known as the Emperor's Wrestlers. And these men were the best athletes in the Roman amphitheater and the, best, the bravest soldiers in all the Roman army. They wrestled for the emperor against all who challenged them. And before every contest, they would stand before the emperor's throne and cry out, Mighty wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. One year in midwinter, a rebellion took place in Gaul, which is modern-day France. And among the military that was sent to put down the rebellion was this unit of the emperor's wrestlers. And no soldier was braver or more capable than the wrestlers of the emperor. They were placed under the command of a centurion by the name of Vespasian. But while they were in Gaul, history tells us that many of them were converted to Jesus Christ. How that happened, we're not told. Uh, word got back to the emperor that some of his personal wrestlers had become Christians. And he sent a message to Vespasian with this decree. If there be any among your soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christian, they must die. It was the dead of the winter when Vespasian received the message that his soldiers uh, and, uh, about this. And, and they, at the time, he and his men were camped alongside a frozen lake in Gaul. And Vespasian assembled his troops and he asked, Are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christians? If so, let him step forward. 
and 40 of the wrestlers stepped forward and saluted him. And Vespasian was stunned. Uh, he had not expected any to step forward. Vespasian then said to all of them, I will give you to sundown tomorrow to recant and deny your faith or you must die. At sundown the next day, the soldiers were again assembled together and Vespasian asked, who still clings to the Christian faith even if it means death? And again, the same 40 soldiers stepped forward and stood at attention. Vespasian pleaded with them to deny their faith, but not one soldier would deny Christ. Vespasian didn't want, to, want these men who he loved, respected, and with whom he had fought side by side together to die by the blade of a Roman sword, so he built a large fire by the lake. And he then told them, the decree of the emperor must be obeyed, but I cannot allow you to die at the hands of your fellow soldiers. So you will be stripped naked and you shall stand out on the frozen lake, as, as expose the elements until you freeze to death. Should you recant and deny Christ, the fire will remain burning on the shore. And by returning to the shelter of the fire, you will be denouncing Christ and you shall live. The 40 soldiers, having been stripped of their clothing, fell into four columns of 10 each and began marching towards the center of the frozen lake to their death. But as they marched onto the ice, they chanted, 40 soldiers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Well, all night, all night long, Vespasian stood by the, his campfire and watched those 40 brave wrestlers out on the ice as they slowly succumbed to the elements. And as they grew weaker and weaker, their chanting grew fainter and fainter. Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win of thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. And Vespasian, Vespasian stood by that fire all night, and he was thinking deeply about what he was witnessing. And he hoped they would recant rather than freeze to death, because he truly admired these men. And as morning grew, drew near, one wrestler, no longer able to stand the freezing cold, walked off the ice and came to the edge of the fire, renouncing Christ and his faith. And thinking he was gaining victory over them, Vespasian thought, Aha! More will come now. I know these warriors. But he waited by the lake, and no more came. And then Vespasian heard once again, very faintly from the frozen lake, 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. At that moment, as he stood there, God touched Vespasian's heart. He threw off his helmet, his armor, his clothing, and he took off across the ice to join his men, shouting at the top of his voice, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. That's the level of courage that Christ brings to the heart of those whom he has chosen and loves. He values them highly, and so he will never leave them or forsake them, even in times of great tribulation. And he'll give them the courage they need for those times so they don't need to be afraid. Well, so far we've seen that a true disciple emulates his master. He fears God more than he fears the world. And next week, we will start on the next mark of a true disciple, which is that he confesses Christ. And after you've wiped away all your tears, are there any questions or comments? Who was the, the gentleman who's too 
That was uh, just a minute. I know his last name. I want to get the first name. Um, did I go back too far? 